Peter chapter 2, verses 23, 24, and 25. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 23, 24, and 25. I remind you, this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Now let's pray. O Lord and our God, we ask your blessing upon the reading and preaching of your word, and we ask that you would bless it, that Christ might be glorified. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Peter is writing this letter to the church, and he's writing it to the church dispersed throughout the world. If you examine the first chapter and the first couple of verses, there are lots of different places and countries and regions that he references. And so he's writing to the church that is dispersed throughout the world. And if you're anything like me, when I'm when I'm alone or feeling separated from the body of Christ or or at, at distance from the church, I feel in some ways bereft of fellowship, uh, lonely, um, even even very much uh, isolated. And uh, the church had need of instruction, apostolic teaching, uh, and exhortation to live in a certain and specific way concerning uh, what God requires of his people. Uh, yes, God has redeemed us for the purpose of living unto him and living for a purpose and a sense of calling to which God has called us. And we are not left without directions like that uh, like that here within the text this morning. This text, these three verses are within a larger framework of where Peter is talking to the church and telling them that they are living stones being built up on the foundation, which is Christ, and being built up into a household in which God dwells. He's also been speaking about the subject of suffering. Uh, There are churches all throughout these various regions, and they are suffering because uh, they are experiencing persecution, Uh, They are at great distances from larger supporting communities. Uh, They are isolated. They are alone. And uh, some of them are simply suffering according to God's purposes, resulting in uh, the bearing of a daily cross of physical suffering that is a hard load to bear. And the Apostle Paul or Peter is writing to them, telling them that there is precious value in their suffering according to the faithful intentions of their creator in God. In the midst of all of that, he begins to speak about the suffering that Jesus Christ endured. And as he unfolds the suffering that Christ endured, he begins to preach to us and and to share with us things which are an encouragement immediately to our soul. 
And so in these three verses, I think he unfolds something significant for us, and, and it, it concerns the very nature of who Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done. And we may wonder about that. Perhaps we've looked at Christianity and we've looked at Jesus from a distance and we've said, you know, I'm curious about what it all means and why is the church so centered on this person? In the words of a dear friend, why, what, what's so, what, what is it, why is it all about this Jesus? What, 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 what is the centrality of this person of Jesus Christ? Why is everyone so enamored with Jesus? Why do we speak and act and ask and make requests of God in the name of Jesus Christ? And why is he the center of our faith? Well, I think that's answered in these verses here as we, uh, for a week, take a break from uh, the Luke's gospel that we've been going through now for a few months. Uh, And as we take up 1 Peter in this text this morning, the Apostle Peter tells us about the very nature of what Christ has done. Maybe you're an inquisitor, you've been on the outside and you've said, I really don't understand the significance of Jesus Christ to Christianity. What is the the fundamental place that Jesus holds for a believer's faith? Or maybe you're a believer and you've wondered, you know, I I see the love that others have for Jesus Christ, but, but I find my own love for Christ is not... It doesn't seem to be as fervent as theirs. And, and I struggle to understand what Christ has done for me. I think that Peter helps us to understand and will help each of us in turn this morning. But first, there are three things here within this passage that the Apostle Peter unfolds for us that Jesus did and explains the nature of what he has done. The first thing is found in verse 23. He did not retaliate. Now, I've just gotten done telling you we're going to explain three things that Jesus has done. And yet the first point that I have is uh, the things which Jesus did not do. And, And of course, it is relevant in the passage here because it harkens back to a passage from Isaiah chapter 53, an Old Testament passage speaking prophetically about a servant who would come, one who was sent from God who was oppressed, as it says in Isaiah 53, and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due. Why did Jesus not speak or react against those who would revile and persecute him? Why did he, while while submitting to suffering at the hands of individuals who were guilty of oppression, why would he not speak and revile in return and or utter threats? Why would he not do this? It's a remarkable thing to all of us as we look at the sacrifice of Jesus. We've all heard the story. Jesus was on the cross. He was lifted up there because the Jewish authorities of his day saw him as a threat against themselves. He would undermine their authority because he came with a message that they were no longer filling the same place 
but rather he was affirming the priesthood of all believers. And he was affirming that they themselves were guilty of holding to a a religious system, a, a rigorous system of law keeping that would not in any way make them righteous before God. And so that undermined their commitments. And so they could not have that. And so they sought to to put him to death from an early point in his ministry, especially when he undermined their authority. And so when the day come came, when when ultimately he was led on Friday on a Friday evening, and he experienced trial after trial after trial, each of them in turn was either illegal or unjust, and then eventually being put to death. <clears throat> pardon me, on Thursday evening, being put to death on Friday. Ultimately, the Lord Jesus did not open his mouth. He did not speak against his accusers. He did not revile in return. He did not seek revenge. Why? Why did Jesus go like a helpless lamb to the cross and endure the suffering of that cross, of being hung there, nailed with his hands and his feet, with nails hung on that hated wood, as it says literally in the Greek here in verse 23. He bore our sins in his body on the wood. The reason why Jesus endured is because it pleased God to redeem sinners. It pleased God to reconcile broken people. It pleased God to free sinners from the oppression of sin. We live in a a day and age in a culture where we hear a great deal about oppression and about being oppressed. And there are many, many, many people groups in our world that are deeply oppressed, that are dominated by another people group or by various powers and of principalities and I'll tell you, there is, there is no greater oppression in the world than sin. There is no greater oppression in the world than to be held under sin's sway and judgment. To be held under the oppression and tyranny of Satan in the exercise of sin. To hear and to respond obediently, continually, without any relief, that is the worst Oppression that anyone could find themselves under in this world. And if we are not in Christ, if we have not been freed by what Christ has done here on the cross, then in fact the truth remains that we're still under that oppression, still subject to slavery, enslaved to sin. And yet Jesus, it pleased God to send forth his son, to glorify his son in the salvation of sinners, you and me. And Jesus volunteered for this in the covenant of redemption. Do you think about that? Jesus volunteered to do this. As you see him there on the cross and and before his accusers the night before, at no point did he revile or, or threaten retribution. He even said at one point to Pilate, I could ask my father and he would send legions of angels. In other words, I can bring this whole proceeding to an end and I can put all of you before me to an end. And yet, by virtue of, by, by implication of what he said, he did not do it. Because he didn't call them forth. He didn't ask his father for this. 
Rather, he suffered like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And he volunteered for this. There was no necessity of response on his part. You, you might think, well, he should answer his critics and he should answer back and say, no, I'm innocent. And he should answer back and tell them and threaten to them, do you understand the significance of what you're doing? Do you, do you know what you're guilty of here in oppressing me? But, but he didn't need to do that. You see, he was not subject to them. He was not ultimately subject to them to the extent that he owed them an explanation. There was no necessity on his part of response because ultimately he was there on the cross and he submitted to the cross in order to, that he might satisfy the justice of God. And if that was his goal, they could do with him what they will. They only ultimately served his purpose. Jesus, if you see him on the cross by faith, you understand the circumstances of his death. You need to understand that he was there in supreme and majestic sovereignty. And what he did, he did by design. He did purposefully, voluntarily, intentionally. And he did it for you and he did it for me. He could have put a stop to it, but he did not. No judgment on the part of his accusers was independent or sovereign in and of itself, nor were they themselves independent or sovereign, but only he. He said to Judas in that moment in the upper room before these events, he said, go and do what you have purposed in your heart to do. He knew exactly who he was. He knew exactly what he was going to do. And he sovereignly commanded him to go and do what he had purposed in his heart to do. And yet facing all of that grief and facing all of that suffering and being silent in the midst of all of that suffering, why did he stay? In John 10, it says, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Why did he lay it down of his own accord? Why would he lay down his life? That brings us to the second passage or second portion of this passage that speaks to us concerning the work of Jesus Christ. And that is, secondly, he bore our sins and he healed us. He did not speak back. He did not revile in turn. He did not owe a response to those who judged him and oppressed him. Because his sovereign intention was and he was sent for the purpose of bearing our sins and healing us. Isaiah 53, once again, is so, so resplendently behind this passage. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that was brought, that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
It's extraordinary the language that's used there over and over and over again. There is a constant reference to our sin, our sin, our iniquity, the the stripes that belonged to us, the affliction that should have been ours, our transgressions, our iniquities, the peace that was His that now fell on us because by His wounds we are healed. It's an extraordinary bargain. Can you imagine? God in His glorious Son says, Come unto Me, all you who are are laboring and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what Jesus said. And He's calling us into His marvelous salvation. And He's saying, Come unto Me without money. Come unto Me, all you who are in poverty and have a poverty of spirit, whose hands are empty. Come unto Me, and I will grant to you grace, provision, a robe of righteousness, peace of conscience, freedom from the punishment of God, freedom from the ultimate guilt of sin. I will bear your suffering. I will bear your pain. I will bear your iniquities. I will make payment fully and satisfy completely the justice of God. That is the bargain for the believer. That is the bargain for every man, woman, and child who would believe. You can look at Jesus Christ and recognize that in Him, God is satisfied with regard to His righteousness that He requires of us. There's a certain solidarity, I think, that each of us feels. If you... Here in the city of Springfield and throughout the the surrounding regions, if you go to a traffic light, you know you're going to look to your right or to your, well, this way, right or to your left, and you're going to see someone, and they're going to be holding a sign most likely that will say, uh, homeless, in, in need, uh, God bless. That That's usually what it's going to say, and they're going to, be limping or, or, or looking very sad or even in the instance of one individual who's faithfully out there every day, he's in a wheelchair and uh, he's got his sign and he happily accepts whatever people will give to him. There's certain solidarity that we may feel if we look at those people and think about our standing before God. There is never a moment that you can stand before God with something in your hands that will completely satisfy his law's demand. There is never a moment when you can stand before God bringing something that will satisfy his demand of righteousness. We stand before God with empty hands. We are like every person that stands on the side of the road with a sign saying, Essentially, I have nothing, I'm out of resources, I'm friendless, I'm hopeless, I've got nothing left, I'm utterly dependent upon your grace, and if you'll have mercy on me, I'll have enough food for the day. We stand before God even before we have, it's not like we initiate this, that God walks by on the road and he sees our deplorable condition. We're holding up a sign. We're promising and blessing if he'll be gracious to us. No, before the foundations of the earth, he had contracted with the son that his son Jesus would come, the eternal son of God 
would, would take human form and become a man born of the womb of a Virgin Mary and he would suffer under Pontius Pilate. He would be crucified, dead and buried. He would then rise again from the dead in full satisfaction, having made perfect payment for sinners and he would save us and he would bring us unto God. Before you and I ever went to the roadside with a sign asking for blessing and grace, he had already provided it. But there we are. And that's who we are. We go to God with nothing. Because there is nothing that we can do that will satisfy ultimately the demands of God's righteousness. Jesus' death, it's, it's interesting as we think about it for a moment and even consider it's the theology of Christ's death, it was vicarious. It was, what does vicarious means? We don't, we don't refer to public officials as vicars. Uh, we don't refer to religious officials anymore as vicars. Uh, but a vicar is someone who is a representative. And Jesus in his death was representative of us in the same way that Adam in the unfolding chapters of the, that, that share with us the deplorable condition of mankind into which Adam cast us by his sin. Adam sinned against God and he cast us into sin. We are guilty of sin. We are subject to God's wrath and curse. And yet Jesus, as our second Adam, as a representative, as our representative, as our forensic representative, legally accomplished what you and I, we could not. The overwhelming testimony of Scripture is that Jesus committed no sin. In 1 John 3, 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And yet Jesus suffered on the cross. Jesus suffered there and he endured the wrath of God in judgment against sin because our sins were laid on him. So make no mistake, the death that Jesus Christ endured was was a penalty. Death is a penalty. It is a judgment. It is not the natural order of things. It is not. That's what we tend to say, and somehow we comfort ourselves, we inebriate ourselves when we experience the death of someone that we love, or when we, when we come full face into the recognition of the fact that one day, soon perhaps, we're going to die. It's a sobering thing. Death is a penalty. It is a judgment. It's not something that we can say, well, if we go to the doctors and he tells us that we have an incurable cancer and that if we that we need to go home and ultimately put our affairs into order because we have six months to live. We're not saying that that death is necessarily God's immediate punishment for sins that we have ourselves have committed in the course of our lives. But but the idea is true and, and, and it, it remains that death, all death, every death. All dying things are a result of God's judgment against sin. We live in a fallen world where every human being will experience death. And even though that death may not be as a result of your direct and immediate sins, ultimately death is because of sin. Adam's sin. 
And he was our vicarious representative. He, he represented us before God and he failed. And so Jesus endured, and it must be that he endured a penalty on the cross when he gave up his life and he died. God poured the endless agony of sin into Jesus Christ, and yet his righteousness is endless. It's extraordinary to think about Jesus and his sufferings on the cross. He suffered because he endured the wrath of God that was directed against sin. And our sins on that cross were imputed to him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says exactly what it is. God made him who, him sin, God made him sin who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It is a history-turning, extraordinarily unique day when God placed all of the sin and corruption of mankind, all the sins of those for whom Christ came to die, all those elect unto God, unto Him, legally transferring to Him the guilt and the corruption and the penalty for all of it that came with it. And so when you see the cross and the suffering of Jesus Christ, you must see that is the suffering that I deserved for sin. That is the penalty that I deserved for my sins. And Jesus has come to take away that penalty. Jesus has come to take all of the fullness of the poured out cup of God's wrath He has come to take all of our guilt and corruption if we by faith receive him and trust alone in him. In that moment when Christ was nailed to the cross and lifted up onto that hill, God punished the only man who had never committed any sin, who was never a guilty offender, the only innocent man who suffered for the sins of others, ultimately, the Lord has laid on him the sin of us all. That's what Scripture says. He didn't in that moment become a sinner. He was never a sinner. In him was no sin, is the testimony of Scripture. Nor was he personally guilty. Rather, he bore our guilt. He was not instantaneously wicked. He became sin and died for you in your place through the legal transfer of our sins to him. He stood in your place and he paid the outstanding balance of your debt for which your very life and eternity was forfeit by virtue of the fact that you are a sinner, and I am a sinner. What happens when you can't pay a debt? What happens when you get a debt and you really can't pay it? Let's say that this year you decide you're sick and tired of paying taxes, and you decide, I'm not going to pay my real estate tax anymore. What will happen? Well, what's going to happen is, ultimately, it may take years, it will take years, because the wheels of democracy work slowly, the wheels of the court move slowly, but pretty soon, eventually, you're going to receive letter upon letter upon letter upon letter, and eventually, you will be dragged into court, and eventually, the state or local city 
will will take control of your home or ultimately put a lien against your home, which means that one day when and if you sell it, that lien will eventually have to be paid with penalties, of course. And the penalties will be far, far worse than the original obligation. If you owed a great deal of money to the IRS, and let's just say you decided for a year, I'm not going to pay my taxes, and then you decided, oh, I loved this year. This year was so good. I had so much extra money. I had just enough. the, The amount of money that I would have paid for taxes went toward gas. I didn't have to pay for gas all year, really. And then you decide, this was so good, I'm not going to pay taxes for 10 years. And you just check out. And you just don't pay taxes anymore. Well, it will will bring its own complications to you if you ever want to borrow money or buy a car or buy a house. or It will bring other complications to you as well. But eventually the IRS catches you and they come to you and they say you owe 10 years of back taxes with penalties, of course. And there you are. And you don't have enough money for it. Your net worth is only half of what they say that you owe. What will you do? Eventually, after all the tax attorneys get involved, eventually all your assets will be seized. But what happens if you don't have enough? They'll seize everything you've got. and They'll make the best out of whatever you do have. But what if someone came along and I had, let's just say I had twice what you have, and I said to the IRS, look, I'll, I'll make the payment for them, seize what I have, in full satisfaction of not only the original debt, but also the continuing obligations of, of the, the, the expanding fees and service fees. In a very real way, Christ has done that. For sinners, you and me, who have an obligation before God, owe far more than we could ever repay. And in fact, to be honest, our sins have such an infinite infinite sense of a causation of division between ourselves and God, a breaking of fellowship between ourselves and God, that we can never, ever, ever, ever bridge that gap. And yet Jesus has stood in our place, paying the outstanding balance of our debt for which our life and our eternity was forfeit. We will not be dragged into the court of God's demands of justice and of righteousness. We will never face his punishment if we have faith in Jesus Christ. The debt has been paid. No other seizure can occur. He appeared in order to take away sins. And if you have faith in Jesus Christ, your sins have been taken away. Not in part, but the whole. Thirdly and finally, we are reaching the end. He has brought us back to God. We have seen three things. We have seen two things thus far. He did not revile in return. We have seen that he also accomplished the work, bore our sins, and healed us. But thirdly and finally, we also see that he has brought us back to God. That's really your and my greatest need, isn't it? To be reconciled to God. We need reconciliation with our Creator. We need fellowship to be renewed once again with our God. What kept Christ there on the cross, ultimately? 
love for the Father and love for you. That you and I, we might become the righteousness of God and in Christ Jesus. We can't make ourselves righteous. We can't clean ourselves up. We can't make ourselves right legally. But Jesus offered himself for sinners' sake. And according to 1 Peter 3.18, which is just a chapter later after this same passage, I think Peter summarizes the significance of the work Christ has done. And he says this, For Christ also died for sins once for all. The just for the unjust. Once for all. Do you see, Jesus didn't need to be offered repeatedly for sinners. It is not necessary that Jesus be offered constantly or repetitively. And this is to some extent why we have a disagreement with those who would hold. And this is really, I think, the greatest difference between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism and, and or, 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 or Presbyterianism, but Protestantism as, as a whole. Roman Catholics would believe that a continued visitation upon and and right use of sacraments will keep one in that journey toward salvation. They believe that sacraments and penance and acts of faith and, and prayers and the activities of a believing heart, continued participation in these things, prayers to the saints, in, and prayers to Mary, etc., etc., will ultimately infuse and continue to infuse a righteousness within the individual such that they will then be ultimately one day, hopefully, more righteous than bad, And that as they partake of those sacraments week after week, Christ is sacrificed again and again afresh every week. And that the individual is renewed continually in that necessity of an ongoing participation in the sacraments. And that if they fail to keep up regular attendance, regular prayer, regular penance or acts of penance, regular participation in the sacraments, then in fact they may lose the virtue of the sacrifice and they may lose their salvation. We believe what Peter outlines in Second Peter or First Peter chapter three verse eighteen that I read just a moment ago. Christ died for the sake of offering himself as the righteous for the unrighteous, once for all. Once for all. It is finished is the words, those are the words that Jesus said on the cross, isn't it? Didn't he say in in the utterance of his, the last words that he offered there post-suffering, even while he still hung on the cross, it is finished to tell us die. <clears throat> it is finished. What did he mean by that? He meant ultimately, I have satisfied the requirements of the law. I have satisfied the requirements of God's justice. I have satisfied and fully taken in All the punishment that was due for sin, it is complete, it is done, there is nothing more for you to do but believe and repent. That's it. 
In the words of the great hymn, he has quenched Mount Sinai's flame, he has washed us in his blood, he has brought us nigh to God. He did all of this so that you and I might die to sin and live to righteousness. And we'll say more about that in a moment, but that's what he says in verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. There are all sorts of applications for us as we close this morning in these in these things. The first thing that we have to do is believe. We need to believe. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is and was the eternal Son of God and that he hung there on the cross by his own sovereign will, suffering the endurance of God's wrath in order that you might believe and be saved? There's nothing that you can do to make yourself more acceptable to God other than to believe and to be be saved. You need to come like a poor and needy sinner, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus has come to save you. He asks nothing of you but to believe. And nothing should make you hold back and think somehow that, well, what I have to do is I have to make myself a little bit more acceptable, wash myself up up a little bit more before I can go to God. No, you need only believe. He will sanctify you. He will cleanse you. He has died for this sake so that you will die unto sin and live unto righteousness. That is his purpose. And he is sovereignly and secretly about that work in every saved heart. Don't worry about cleanliness. Believe. The cleanliness will come. He will cleanse you and sanctify you completely in the inner person. In the meantime, all you need to do and all that you can do is turn away from your sins and turn to Jesus Christ. Now, there are some of us here this morning who are struggling in a different way. You've believed, you've been reconciled to God, you're trusting in Him, and yet you doubt. And you struggle, and you you, you have a hard time believing that, yes, God could have mercy on you, even you, even me. We struggle because we have a sense of, and we're convicted about our sins, and we are condemned in our own conscience, and we hear Satan telling us, Who are you to think that God would die for you after all that you've ever done with the course of your life? You have failed. You have offended the living God. Where have you been? You've been living for yourself. You're trusting in Him and yet you doubt. But why are you doubting, Christian? There's nothing more for you to do that will make you acceptable to God. What did Jesus say? It is is finished. What was he referring to? All that the Father could ever require of you, all that the law demanded, all that God's justice cried out for, there's nothing more for you to do to win God's approval. You have direct and immediate access to God if in fact you have faith in Jesus Christ. There's nothing you could possibly ever add to Christ's sacrifice of himself there's nothing you could wash away or do in activity or think before god that would in any way add to the sacrifice of the perfect son of god nothing 
Nothing at all. There's nothing for you to do to win God's approval. There's nothing that you need to do that will ultimately then lead ultimately for God to say, well, all right, I'll save you. Some of us believe that we have to make ourselves a little bit better. And some of us think, well, you know, last week was a good start. I I had a good week. It wasn't too bad. I didn't think too many bad things. I'll tell you, there's always reason within our conscience for condemnation. We have lived for ourselves. We have lived unto ourselves. We have lived for self, even even when we have done the good things that we would lift up and say, look what I've done. Uh, Those things were not done for the right purposes. They were not done for godly purposes. They were not done ultimately for God. Therefore, they will not ultimately glorify God. Maybe we've made excuses for ourselves. It's it's my upbringing. It's 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 my it's my parents. It's my brother, my sister, my circumstances. I'm just the way that I am. I am what I am. And God's made me this way. Well, maybe you think that your problem really ultimately is that you need to make other choices. And if you'd only been given different stimulus and and you've added a better way of life or or been brought up in better circumstances, you would have made a better better result out of your life. Well, here's the problem. Even with different circumstances, and even if you had made better choices, you are still a sinner because of your sin nature. You still serve that inner beast of self. You're far more corrupt. You're far more sinful. And this this is the language, this is the message of Scripture. You are far more corrupt far more sinful than you could ever imagine. You really have not submitted your motives, your inner intentions, your deepest goals, your deepest longings to the bar of God's justice. You're satisfied with so much less than what God demands in his righteousness. Even in different circumstances, and even if I had made better choices, we're still sinners. We still are born with a sin nature. What about the discouragement that a Christian feels? When our conscience condemns us and tells us that we'll never be worthy of Jesus and of his sacrifice, Jesus would never die for me. We immediately resolve to do better and to be more faithful. But aren't you trying to be what Christ said that he would be for you? Some, somehow we're, we're submitting to the notion that we must make ourselves acceptable to God before we could ever be reconciled to him. But you can never do this and you can never even put yourself into a position of acceptability because you can never keep yourself there persistently and consistently. We struggle with feeling that we're right with God, with an assurance of God's grace We're practically ultimately denying that Christ has finished the work when we think that we have to do better, when we think that we have to improve ourselves before God will deal with us graciously. But Jesus said, it is finished. It is finished. So we don't need to earn our salvation. We have only to believe and trust in him. And then God will in his grace enable and equip you to live for him. Christ has come to 
cause us to die to sin and to live in righteousness. And so when we look at the cross, we understand the transaction that took place there, but it is also a motivation there for us to no longer look to our own self-righteousness or no longer look and wallow in our own guilt or our corruption. There's nothing within ourselves that will in any way match up to his love for us. No condemnation for us. There is an unbreakable love that God himself has for us. And that love caused his son to endure the suffering and the shame of the cross. And so the doctrine of the cross lifts us up, lifts us out of the morass of sin and motivates us, not on the basis of being becoming acceptable to God, but motivates us out of the motivation of love. I love God. And look at the way that he has loved me. Look at the way that he has loved you. He endured the cross and the suffering and the shame in order that you, that you might die to sin and live under righteousness. His cross heals us. It heals us of the continuing domain of sin, lifting us up, encouraging us to embrace his love and live for him. He took that agony so that you would embrace dying to the power and guilt of sin. And each day and each moment we would say, no, I don't want to be angry in this situation. I shouldn't be angry. I shouldn't be bitter over this circumstances. No, I shouldn't be revengeful and hateful toward that individual. No, I shouldn't complain about my own rights here, but rather I should endure and suffer under the will of my Creator. It means that we would say, no, I I can't yield to that lust anymore because I, I have before me the cross of Jesus Christ. He loved me and gave Himself for me. He took my sins upon Himself. How can I add my sins, more sin, daily sin, the continuing return to sin, how can I do this? What Jesus done, has done motivates us to die to the power of sin and encourages us to walk in righteousness. Do you have something in your hands to return to an earlier thought, to, to present to God with an upheld face, boldly to say, this will reconcile me to you in the great moment of judgment? There's nothing you can bring in your hands, dear friend, except to embrace the cross of Jesus Christ who loved you and gave himself for you. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we give thanks to you for you have wrought a glorious salvation for us. We ask that you would forgive us of our sins We ask that you would refresh us in that sacrifice of cross which Christ brought and presented himself before you as he endured sovereignly the events of the cross in order that he might present us blameless before you. Help us to believe. Work faith in our heart. Show us that we cannot fulfill your law's righteous demands. Motivate us as Christians to live for Jesus Christ, to die from our sins, and to live unto righteousness. 
We ask, Lord, all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.